Hey y'all, welcome back to Zora's Daughters, the podcast where we tackle topics of interest to Black folks through the lens of academic scholarship and colorful insight. I'm Brendan, and I use she, her, hers pronouns. Hi everyone, I'm Melissa, and I use she, her pronouns as well. I am still in New York because of Hurricane Fiona. I was supposed to go back last week and I left my good microphone in Martinique. So apologies for the bad audio quality again. But yes, we will get through it together. At least you're safe. At least you're here safe. Exactly. That's what matters. On today's episode, we will be talking all things sovereignty, non-sovereignty, and the death of the sovereign, a.k.a. Queen Elizabeth II. You know, in the words of Cardi B, ding dong! Ding dong! (laughs) I'm going to quote her with that one. Um, (laughs) We also have some other related topics, too, like the colorblind casting in period pieces such as Bridgerton, Jeremy O'Harris's Slave Play, The Woman King, and more. But before we get into it, we have the part of the episode where we raise the offering. Church folk (laughs) will be very familiar with what this is, and I recently realized that that's basically what we're doing. And as our resident (laughs) former church lady, I'm going to let Brendan take us to the altar because I know she she got the the speech, she she got the words, she got the flow. (laughs) <laughs> I'm crying. We we don't call it that, but um, I can give it a try. <laughs> that might be a regional thing. Um, <laughs> so this season, right, the Lord has some. I'm just kidding. We have so many things in store for you. Um, but we do not sell advertising space, so we actually really depend on your generosity to keep this thing going. Right, we want to continue to pay our black transcriptionist competitive rates right we want to com- to pay our contractors competitive rates as well right we have to keep our equipment up to date right we need to have money in the account so that way when one of us is in a different country and needs a mic we can do what we need to do right continue to bring the good word your way um, <laughs> <laughs> and we also use this money to give our guests honoraria for their time. Right? So folks who have come to speak on Zora's Daughters, and we always want to honor their time and commitment through honoraria. And that comes through donations. Right? So one of the ways that you can continue to support us is by joining our Patreon at patreon.com slash Zora's Daughters. You can become a monthly subscriber for $3, as the prophet used to say. But God says there's 20 people here with $3. (laughs) That's how we used to call um, call for offering. Um, But that $3 gives you access to exclusive content and conversations, including our semesterly discussion section where you get to hang out with us. And we'll be announcing the dates for that soon. Now, you can also buy merch which does double duty, right? We make a small profit, very slim profit, (laughs) and you get to share our podcast with whoever sees you in it. We have some cool stuff on there, tote bags, shirts, notebooks, right? So head to zorastarters.com slash shop to check them out. Okay, in scene, is that? (laughs) Hallelujah, amen. (laughs) Copy spirit and all of that. (laughs) A women, a women, as my friend Azriel says, a women. Oh, I love um, it. <laughs> this is unfortunately is not my 
culture, <laughs> the black church. So I simply observe. Um, <laughs> and I think it was great. It was lovely. And as always, we want to say that we are grateful to each and every one of you. You are taking your time out to listen to this episode. That is a huge boost to us. You know, sharing our posts on social media. We see you. We repost you. We love it. And just anyone who's part of the community, we are blessed. We are thankful. And let's get into the episode. Brendan, what's the word? Today's word is sovereignty. And sovereignty is a really sexy word right now, particularly in cultural anthropology. But as we always do, right, we're going to start from the foundations and build it out from there. So the straight up dictionary Merriam-Webster definition for sovereignty is, quote, supreme power, especially over a body politic, freedom from external control, autonomy. So the body politic refers to the collective organization of citizens, which is a fraught word that we've discussed here before, of a nation, a state, or a society that is considered metaphorically as a physical body. So historically, the sovereign, which would have been the king, is portrayed as the body's head. So that head, the sovereign, had the power to determine who lives and who dies, or to declare someone homo sacer, which if you remember our episode Deathcraft Country, which was season one, episode six, if you want to go back, I explained some of Giorgio Agamben's work on bare life and so you'll know that homo sacer means cursed man and meant that this person could be killed without punishment, but could not actually be sacrificed for any kind of rituals. So it can also mean sacred man in the sense that the only protection that this, that this person deemed homo sacer had was from the gods and not the rule of law. So we're going to be speaking a little bit, of, a little bit more Latin, a little bit more Latin. Mm-hmm. I did not take Latin. Brendan did, actually. <laughs> middle school i love latin oh my gosh so you should be telling us about the writ of habeas corpus no that's some it's a legal term okay actually (laughs) habeas corpus it means show me the body and it is a constitutional right that safeguards individual freedom against arbitrary executive power that is it's the body politics protection against the sovereign or the head body politic head all right protection. It was adopted to protect people from illegal and unlawful imprisonment by the word of the king or other major power, like the government. And now we all know that this right is not equally applied to every person, right? Not only does the monarch have power over people, the monarch also has jurisdiction over territory, the principles of which became enshrined into international law via the Treaty of Westphalia. So for those of you who are like, girl, what the fuck? What is that? Um, (laughs) The Treaty of Westphalia, (laughs) which I actually had an AP European history question on 15 15 years ago. Um, So this (laughs) treaty was signed in 1648 in Germany that ended the 30 and the 80 years wars, bringing peace to the Roman Empire, the Spanish Empire, the kingdoms of France and Sweden and other countries. 
So the agreements made there are the foundation to the principle in international law that states have exclusive sovereignty or jurisdiction over their territory. Another thing we know is not always applied equally. Mm-hmm. Cough, cough, U.S. imperialism. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> In the essay Unsettling Sovereignty, Jarimar Bonilla argues that sovereignty as a concept arose before the Treaty of Westphalia and originated in the colonial project. Quote, the concept of sovereignty provided a legal technology with which to lay claim to to putatively unowned lands, that is terra nullius. Sovereignty as a legal concept is thus grounded in concrete material practices of dispossession, the practical work of disenfranchisement, and the creation of legal regimes of difference, end quote. Sovereignty, then, is always already a practice of violence, exploitation, and hierarchy. Exactly. So in The Sovereignty of Critique, uh, Audra Simpson takes that further to say that sovereignty as a political aim is the handmaiden of capital and mercantilism that, quote, authorize the travel of foreigners to indigenous territories and the massive forcible detachment of people in search of more land, more labor, and more capital. Indigenous lands and bodies were Western sovereignties, supposed terra nullius and tabula rasa, their lands, their bodies, and then minds. Exactly. So that leads us to a point where we're questioning, is sovereignty really the end point that we should all be seeking? Mm-hmm. Question mark. And we'll talk about that in the next section. But the 50s and 60s were a time of great post-colonial hope where dominated people sought and fought for independence from the colonial empires that colonized them. In the Caribbean, the concepts of independence and sovereignty implied freedom, autonomy, and self-determination given to the people. However, Lyndon Lewis, in The Dissolution of the Myth of Sovereignty in the Caribbean, argued that power to determine your destiny would be assumed by the state. Through several examples, he shows how sovereignty is neither guaranteed nor absolute. He cites the interference of the U.S. government in Haiti and Grenada, corporations in Jamaica and Trinidad, the IMF structural adjustment plans, which if you want to know more about that, then you can check out the documentary Life and Debt, among other things. And of course, the U.S. has had a hand in ending many sovereignty movements around the world. Another wink, wink, nod, nod. Internal in, external. Mm. Mm. So these authors suggest that we must unsettle the notion of sovereignty altogether and consider cooperation, integration, and interdependence as a way to overcome the threats of globalization, particularly among the weak, the quote-unquote weak class. Mm. Yeah, I think that's a great transition into what we're reading today. We are reading Non-Sovereign Futures, French-Caribbean Politics in the Wake of Disenchantment by Jarimar Bonilla. Jarimar Bonilla is the director of the Center for Puerto Rican Studies at Hunter College. She is also a professor in the Department of Africana, Puerto Rican, and Latino Studies at Hunter College, and in the PhD program in Anthropology at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. Bonilla teaches and writes about questions of sovereignty, citizenship, and race across the Americas. She has tracked these issues across a broad range of sites and practices, including 
anti-colonial labor activism in the French Caribbean, the role of digital protests in the Black Lives Matter movement, the politics of the Trump presidency, and her current research on the political and social aftermath of Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico. So I thought this would be a great choice because Bonilla kicks off the first chapter of the book with the passing of Aimé Césaire, who mm-hmm. is essentially Martinican political and cultural royalty. I mean, the Césaire name carries much weight, carries a legacy, And I actually went to Martinique for the first time just a few years after his death. And there were some assistants. I was an English teaching assistant. And there were other assistants who were there at that time. And they talked about how teachers took their classes outside. And they they said it was in this very militant way. Took them outside, lined them up, and they just shouted about how this was a historic occasion. You'll remember this day and remember where you were. And a lot of people were crying and very upset uh, when when his passing was announced. And so Césaire wasn't just the intellectual most academics know know of, know about, know about his work. He was a state representative and mayor of the island's economic capital for nearly 60 years. Okay, so the queen just did 70, he did 60. Nearly. (laughs) From 1945 to 2001. So he saw some things. He saw some things. (laughs) His death kicks off a reckoning about his legacy as a beloved intellectual and political figure, but also someone who may have been complacent at best and erroneous at worst in his decision to departmentalize the overseas departments of France. So for those of you who did not have the geography teaching that you should have, like myself, right? Uh, France Me too. <laughs> has, look... I barely know where I am in the world. Um, So (laughs) France has several old colonies, and these colonies are named because they were acquired during the monarchical imperial expansion in the 16th and 17th century rather than in the 19th and 20th century colonizations. um, And so, you know, the land grab, quote unquote, of Africa that happened in the 19th and 20th centuries. And so these old colonies are Martinique and Guadeloupe in the Caribbean, uh, Saint-Pierre and Miquelon off the east coast of Canada, and French Guyana in South America, and Reunion Island in the Indian Ocean. And these are fully incorporated departments treated like states of France, so similar to Hawaii or Alaska. And this incorporation, called the Law of Assimilation or Departmentalization, which is a term that Césaire coined, Right, was passed in 1946, nearly 100 years after the abolition of slavery. Yes, so when slavery was abolished, enslaved, formerly, the formerly enslaved became citizens, but similar to in the United States, they were not extended the full rights and protections um, mm-hmm. under the law as citizens of the mainland. So when they became a department, this departmentalization marked the moment where they became fully incorporated citizens, one could say, at least in law. (laughs) At least in the law. At least in the law, in practice, you know, different things. (laughs) And slavery was abolished in 1848 for the second time in Guadalupe, not the first time. That's another story. Y'all can read Bonilla's book to find out more because she talks about it. Yep. (laughs) 
In Non-Sovereign Futures, Bonilla argues that sovereignty is an insufficient container for the future of people in post-colonial polities. We are living in the wake of post-colonial disenchantment. That is, the hope and promises of independence have been shown to be mostly false. Through that lens, she challenges our beliefs that state sovereignty or independence is the ideal that post-colonial territories should seek and encourages us to develop the language for an alternative outside this modernist frame. To do this, she examines the experiences of contemporary labor activists in Guadeloupe and how they reckon with conceptual frames and political legacies they have been given in order to forge new visions of the future. This thread of temporality is something that I really want you all to hold on to as we consider as we continue through the episode. I think the way that we can be constrained by the past, by our heritage or inheritances, and at the same time have those be something that we turn to in order to ground us in times of crisis is, I think, a, a little thread that you'll see running through this episode. Yes. And the thread of temporality is essential when we think about how decolonial movements rely on the presence of the cultural and economic modes of slavery in its supposed afterlife, right? So this idea that slavery is supposed to be been done, but it's still present in here in the ways that we live our lives and how our lives are structured. And so Bonilla actually does a really explicit tie in, in her work uh, with the struggles of Guadalupean workers and activists, right, with sovereignty, uh, with those of enslaved people struggle for freedom. So she runs freedom and sovereignty as like a parallel but intertwined track with each other. And she marks the history of slavery as important to understanding the political project of contemporary activists. So both enslaved folks, right, and these contemporary activists knew that freedom and sovereignty were European ideals that they could never truly achieve. And yet, they were constrained to use these terms to structure their own political projects. And so Bonilla's intervention centers this question among many, right, which is how do we make futures using political categories and structures that we know cannot contain the needs we have identified in the present? She talks about the activists that are in the process of, quote, prefiguring worlds that they cannot describe, right? So being that they're doing this, what cultural, moral, and affective realms of political practice are developed in their struggle, right? So how can we think past economic and or material gains from war or, you know, struggle with these colonial powers as the only markers of a successful political struggle? Mm, I think that's such an important point, particularly something that this book does uh, a really good job of bringing out and is a question that I think we all have to reckon with yeah. as we think about change and revolution. And we don't. A lot of people are just like, oh, as long as we're the same as mm-hmm. them, <laughs> them having some weight to them, y'all. <laughs> as mm-hmm. long as we're the same as them, we're fine. But why would you want to reproduce the same politics and practices of domination that we were under in this future that is meant to be different. Right. That is actually defined by your subjugation. Mm. So it's so it's not just the desire, but the impossibility of the desire that really in, intrigues me. Mm. <laughs> but yeah, the, really the mind fuck. The mind fuck. Mm-hmm. 
So throughout the book, Bonilla explores the legacies of the past and the way these narratives are mobilized by labor activists, whether in acknowledging Guadalupe's political position, discussing slavery and colonialism during negotiations with French officials, or organizing memory walks to transmit historical knowledge of place. In the book, Place and Nature act as an archive that demonstrate the ways the past is, quote, obsessively present in the Caribbean, but also act as a testament to the power of political action, fueling hope in the possibility of a new collective future. Mm. So at the same time that they're walking through these sites of memory, learning about history, they're also realizing that things have changed and things can change. So it, it acts as this this inspirational practice to help motivate people to continue the struggle. Right. Yeah. It's, it's the springboard, right. Which is why, I mean, just in the U S alone, there's so many campaigns against giving people good education, right. Cause once you recognize where you've come from and what has changed, you work towards changing things in the future. Bonilla also explores the post-colonial disenchantment that arose, uh, as we mentioned earlier, after the promises of freedom and sovereignty failed. And in our notes, I have failed in quotation marks because um, one of the things that I really like to do in my work is part of this like mindfuckery is to actually take these projects seriously. Um, (laughs) But that's something that gets a little complicated to explain. But I think that freedom and sovereignty actually have achieved what they meant to achieve, right? But that just, that's just one layer of like thinking through this. Um, But in thinking of them as failures, right? And thinking of them as problems, um, she categorizes both freedom and post-colonial sovereignty as problems and as projects. So labeling them as problems calls attentions to their failure right, to provide African descended people with the rights that they were promised. And this failure is because these rights were rooted in these liberal European ideas that were actually based upon um, their subjugation, right? So for emancipated slaves, right, freedom, once they were emancipated from slavery, freedom meant participating in the capitalist market freely, having the, quote, right to work, Right. And the naturalization of wanting things that you worked hard for. Right. So all of those things are actually capitalist principles. Right. Um, And as one tweet I saw a while back said, you know, the only difference between what we do now and what what our ancestors did back then is that we can pay eight more dollars an hour or something like that. (laughs) And I was like, whoa. And to know that the eight dollars that we get now is not nearly what $8 back then was worth and also changes the game. Um, right. <laughs> Sovereignty, right. As achieved or as defined under these kind of liberal European ideals, uh, actually equaled things like a passport, having a flag, having coin, a stamp and the autonomous nation state. And so these two problems of freedom and sovereignty, Bonilla argues, are, quote, parallel and entwined, right? Both have hinged upon abstract promises of codified equality accompanied by a careful escort into codified systems of intrinsic inequality. So a beautifully worded way of saying they brought us some promises that they definitely didn't keep. 
right? So in order to bring these abstract promises of equality to us, right, they were escorted or accompanied by these systems that actually were intrinsically and sometimes unmovably unequal. And so these problems and projects of freedom and sovereignty actually produced a form of what Bonilla names as colonial universalism, where everyone was preaching freedom, everyone's preaching equal inclusion, right? But the actions and the consequences right, actually showed otherwise. Yeah. Yeah, as I, as I was saying earlier, because we were talking about going through this history and, and everything, I think one thing that's important to note is that as Bonilla moves through the history of the Antillean activism, is the way that activists deployed the memory and continued presence of slavery into their movements. Of course, the conditions of the time influenced this greatly, right? So there was the rise of Pan-Africanism, the Algerian War, the Cuban Revolution, France's continued false promises of economic and social integration. All of these forces pushed for a greater sense of nationalism rooted in Antillean Creole um, traditions, language, uh, dance, music, all of those kinds of things, such as the use of guoka drums in their cultural gatherings. These things were seen as backwards to the middle class, of course, but were important for instilling a non-French-centered connection among Antillians, les Antillais. This can be a form of resistance in and of itself, but it shouldn't be the end goal of movement. Right, like I think that's something that we're definitely going to revisit in the next section for sure, as we think with this text to really ask, like, what does it mean to be post-colonial? Uh, the final thing that I want to highlight from Bonilla's work that I thought would really be a cool segue um, is the central problem of the Antillean. Uh, is that how you say it? or Antillean? Antillean. I've been. Spanish is coming out of me. <laughs> the central problem of Antillian um, activists that actually mirrors what we've seen in Black liberation movements across the globe. And so though these activists had gained so much through their labor organizing in these kind of um, recognizable ways, so recognizable by the institution of the government and things like that, right? they were actually still skeptical about what could be gained through French governance. So ultimately, the activists desired not to be French any longer, and perhaps because their historical knowledge and collective movements had granted them wisdom that it was not actually equality under French citizenship that was the project, but actually a new political future that has yet to be achieved. Mm. Yeah, I think, I think what's... I think that's really important. One of the things that I do want to say, I found it interesting that she makes these um, these comparisons or parallels with the with black radical movements in the U.S. or the civil rights movements in the U.S. One thing that I do find is that there's like this there's often this U.S. centrism when it comes to mm -hmm. conversations around. Um, slavery or sovereignty movements and things like that the french caribbean just has just has a completely different context and because it's always or very often what we read are these u.s um scholars writing about the french context you you tend to get these parallels that 
even though she, and I, I will give her credit, she, she does, you know, she's talking about like native terminology and um, native uses of, of words, but I do just want to signal to folks that it's, that the context and the histories are very different. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, we shouldn't, we shouldn't always make these parallels with the U.S., even if it helps with understanding. Because that might not necessarily be how scholars or lay people of the of that place will think about it. <laughs> they attend not as the tension really. I mean, of the anthropological project in itself, right? That like these these things of translation that are actually like incommensurable, or um, right? In order to translate, there's something that's always lost from one thing to the next, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so for for these kind of projects, right? Like the, that history that you mentioned, or the, at least the nuances in the history, the difference in the history gets lost as you try to translate outside of this like US centric scope. So that's very real. And I think that's something that anthropologists writ large have to contend with. They're gonna to continue to do these kind of comparative moves. But me, I'm like, why compare when you could just say what it is? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> when you could just say what it is. I mean, I'm of course there's a reason and it's showing showing the relevance. You are in the US Academy, so people do want to know what's what is the relevance, what can we learn from this and how can we mm-hmm. understand things in our own sphere of influence and understanding. And because these islands are French, they are very much outside of the U.S. sphere of influence. It's not like Jamaica or Grenada or Dominica or something like that, where there's trade and or migration. You don't really get as much. Anyways, I could continue talking about this because this is my stuff that I spend time thinking about. Yeah, y'all didn't see the hair flip. <laughs> y'all didn't see the hair. <laughs> it's hot. My this hair is, is down. But let us this move on. My... Let us move on to the the next segment, the best segment, which is what? In what? What? What in the world? What in the world? What in the world? All right, this is what in the world. Uh, the queen dead off. That is what's going on in the world. The queen um, dead off. The queen dead off. Um, as one of my friends texted me. <laughs> So the queen is in the ground. I watched it happen. At least I saw the commitment ceremony. Um, and then they sang God Save the King, which if you all know the the UK national anthem is, it was God Save the Queen. And then, you know, it changes based on who the monarch is. And they sang God Save the King. And I was like, too soon. It feels a little too soon. <laughs> Someone on Twitter said that like the national anthem changed pronouns faster than any trans person in the UK can change theirs. And no one's freaking Ooh. out about it being woke nonsense. So, you know. Um, but yes, I did watch the funeral. I did get a little teary-eyed, not going to lie. We can unpack that. <laughs> um you know, I was watching. I, mean, honestly, I was watching a lot honestly, of the coverage, and people were like, "The queen was wonderful. She was great. She touched so <laughs> many lives." There was this one, uh, these pair of sisters, 
their late mother loved the queen and apparently their mother used to say the queen invited us indian people here and that's why she loved her and i was like invited invited okay that's what you want to call it Ooh, i mean i'm i mean i don't know again me doing my gemini thing of Okay, I take it seriously. Invitation. That means I call for you to come. Then sure. Right? The only way that they could come is if they were invited. So I guess. But it also does definitely feels like a really, uh, I don't want to label things, but it really just feels like a euphemism. Um, I think that's <laughs> the word I'm going to sit with there. But yeah, I think. There are so many things that I have thought since I I said because people were like not trying to believe that she was dead, but I was like she's obviously already dead. We need to stop pretending like the media gives us accurate information. <laughs> like she's she's already dead. And so when the <laughs> announcement came on after like what a few was it like an hour or something or something like very shortly after I was like she's already dead and. <laughs> You, if people were like, oh, yeah, you knew. I was like, yeah, I be knowing these things. Um, I see, like, a lot of folks' responses to things, particularly death of famous people, as really a reflection of their own fear around death. Mm. And so I think for a lot of us, like, I don't, death does not scare me. Like, I'm not afraid to die. I know that death is actually is a part of what it means to be alive. Like, one day I will die. I don't know when that will happen. Could happen in the next hour. Could happen tomorrow. Could happen, you know, years from now. Um, but I'm not afraid of that. But I think a lot of people are afraid of death. And they're afraid of death because they're afraid that they won't be remembered. They're afraid that... All their fears about being unloved or being uncared for will finally be cemented when there's no one to celebrate them when they their heart stops beating and their brain stops working. So I think that a lot of that projection goes onto people's like emotional responses about death, right? And that's without having the layered like cultural and you know all that stuff on it. So, like, yeah, like, why do black people colonize black people mourn monarchs? Because, you know, that fear, I believe, is, it's, a, it's a space of fear. Because it's not like you have a real connection to this person. Like, you can't couldn't call up Elizabeth and be like, girl, my light's not on. Beca- because you <laughs> exist. I don't have good electricity in my home where I'm at. <laughs> You probably just destroyed some souls. Um, some people are probably like, oh, oh, how does she read me down like that? I'm just... Personally, I am afraid of death, but that's actually just because I'm nosy as hell. <laughs> and I want to know what happens. I want to know what's going to happen in the story of the world, in, in, in the movie of not my life, but of lives and... I think it's disappointing that I won't know, like, you know, <laughs> what happens in 2100 or something like that. So it's, it's a nosiness I, for me, but, you know. It's a nosiness. It's the Aquarian 
nosiness. <laughs> I no, so I actually believe that you will know. You just won't know as Alyssa in in the flesh that you're in now, but when we die, it's not like we disappear. At least that's what I believe. It's not like we disappear. I think some folks transition and become honorable ancestors and are involved in the lives of their descendants, right? Um, and like a lot of like African traditional quote unquote religion, right? Or spirituality teaches that, you know, death is just a transition from one phase to another. Then your soul reincarnates right? and you become someone new. Um, so I don't know, maybe that's why I'm not afraid of death. Mm. Mm. Well, because I'm like you know this is just one one phase of my life you know, so. Well, this is this is another you... episode that we might have to do <laughs> that we might have to talk about. Dead. I um... I think you know of course there were. Lord have mercy. So I will say that from among my friends there were two sentiments, which is one I got a text that just said ding dong. <laughs> my other friend was like the queen dead off i was like okay and then i also had those friends who were very taken aback by the comments on twitter um particularly from black asian from from african asian irish folks irish twitter and they were just like now is now is not the time but then the question is like so when is the time when is the time? Because right now is the time. Like death is the moment where we start cementing someone's legacy. And so why are we going to start? Why are we already whitewashing her legacy? Right? Like for me, I have complicated feelings. I have complicated feelings about it. I said earlier, I got a little teary eyed, right? Because being Canadian, she is a part of my collective memory. And there's, there's a loss there, right? But also, I'm the descendant of people who were stolen from their land and held mm-hmm. captive and enslaved so that her ancestors could put sugar in their tea and make really bad desserts. Their desserts in the UK are not very good. So, <laughs> so it's a little, you know, And but one of the things that I want people to realize is like two things can be true at the same time mm-hmm. like you can you can hold two competing feelings and i don't think that that there is there's anything wrong with that i think that we are writing the story of her legacy the media is and all of those kinds of things so why why should it be whitewashed why would we whitewash the history of the monarchy the violence that was done in the name of queen and country violence done in the name of queen elizabeth um and while I, again, another competing truth, I recognize that heavy is the head that wears the crown. You know, she didn't choose this life. She was tasked with continuing this monarchy that, you know, where, whereas other monarchies have had their head chopped off and okay, fine. But she, you know, she's this woman. Her drip is made up of blood diamonds. You know, she had the opportunity to actually make a difference. She could have stood up for rights and ideals that benefited more than just her and her family, but actually benefited the world as a whole. 
She could have apologized for hundreds of years of colonial atrocities. She never did. Never said the words, I'm sorry. She could have returned stolen treasures, but instead they were buried with her. Um, so, you know, there, there are two competing truths. And like you said, just because you're afraid of death and you're afraid of what will come, what will be cemented after that, doesn't mean that you can't tell the truth about somebody after they die. Yeah, I th- and she also, didn't she try to take her dogs with her? <laughs> like, like, I don't want my dog to survive me. And I was like, well, PETA. Where no, you she, said, she said that so, she didn't want any new puppies. She said she didn't want any puppies because she didn't want to leave them behind. Oh, okay. That's not what I saw. I saw some. I saw somebody be like, "Oh, she wants to take the dogs to the grave with her." I was like, "Oh." But anyway, um, they were at the funeral. Peter. So was her horse. Wow. <laughs> you know, I hope that they feel free. Um, I, <laughs> I honestly don't have any kind of affections. I like this just feels so far removed from the realm of things that I like am invested in and care about. I I only know these people, like the entire family, just from walking past the the tabloids in Walmart. Like I really <laughs> like people like I don't know, people <laughs> magazine or whatever fuck. So I really just don't I, it would be for I would be forcing it to really even be interested beyond the intellectual like what is happening here mm. um and so <laughs> and I think also just like my political orientation is like just despite what whatever she struggle she might have had like, ma'am, you were still queen of England. Still, you still got pictures with Hitler. Like you still have, <laughs> you still, you and Hitler were still friends until, <laughs> until the war started, World War II started. So like, I think that was her I'm uncle. not, <laughs> that was not, okay. See, people be posting pictures and being like, this her and Hitler. Oh, people, out. I oh, saw, people was, I saw people posting pictures of how she bowed to Haley Selassie in Ethiopia. And I was just like, that's historically inaccurate, but (laughs) I'm going to just, I'm going to just let y'all do it. I'm going to let y'all do it. Um, I think, but like one of the things, the money, this is, this is my critique of the, of some of the tweets of some of, of some of Twitter. And I am not, I'm not judging anyone. I'm not saying that you shouldn't tweet. I mean, I tweeted that the queen was dead. So I was like, the queen dead off. All right. But from a political standpoint, I'm just like, what are you celebrating? Because people are celebrating her death like they had something to do with it. <laughs> I'm like, her, she, she died of old age and maybe of like long-term COVID complications, right? Her death was not the result of armed struggle. You're not a revolutionary. Her death doesn't represent the end of the colonial system, but actually it represents its succession. So like, you didn't do anything and nothing changed, so what are you celebrating exactly? I mean, the group chat was popping off because the jokes 
the jokes. We have been the jokes are one thing, but people were like, "Yeah, yay, she's dead," and it's like, okay. I mean, I'm I'm glad that you're happy, but you didn't have anything to do with it, and it doesn't change anything. Literally five seconds after, they were like King Charles the Third. Yeah, I think, I think the political significance. As I'm thinking about the professor, um, Uju Anya, whose family was murdered by, um, by order of the monarchy in um, in Africa. And I'm thinking about for her and like all the backlash that she experienced for saying that she hoped the queen suffered a horrible death. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm I'm not exactly you know what I think it's more of a, like an affective kind of thing, right? Like folks feel that death can be a form of justice, but I think I think what I'm hearing behind your question is there is no sense of justice or change. So then. Why celebrate? And maybe the celebration is maybe two things. Maybe the death doesn't have to have a significant meaning in order to celebrate it. Um, And the celebration in and of itself is to mark that like this symbol, um, this particular symbol of colonial violence is gone. Not that the colonial violence is gone, but the symbol of it is too. Which, I don't know. I mean, in the same way, the way people celebrate kind of like voting victories, things like that, <laughs> where it's like, okay, this is this is a symbolic victory, right? Not a actual tangible one. So what are we celebrating? A new... A new white supremacist in charge, you know? Um, I, I think that, I think feeling satisfaction is one thing. I think feeling justice is another thing. I, I think, I think you've captured what, what was behind my question very well. But Queen Elizabeth is, she's sitting in the seat of what is the, that, that hand of power. So mm-hmm. her death doesn't mark the end. What did you say? The end of um, the end of that colonial period or colonial. What did you say again? Sorry. I think I said colonial violence or something like that. Yeah. Her, her death doesn't yeah. mark the end of a particular period of colonial violence because the crown is. She was just the person wearing the crown. The crown is the ongoing uh, structure and institution. So she mm-hmm. just happened to be sitting in it at the, you know, for the number mm-hmm. of years that she was. And so her death doesn't represent the end of it because Charles is now, he is the face of the crown. That's what I should say. That's what it is. Mm-hmm. They're the face of, of a larger institution. And that's not to say that they don't have power or they are, um, you know, they are only figureheads, but I don't think that their deaths represent the end of anything. The end of the crown represents the end of the colonial violence. And Mm -hmm. he's just the next person wearing it. I don't disagree with you. I think that as someone who likes to celebrate when my enemies (laughs) face whatever they need to face, 
you know, <laughs> even if I'm not the one that brings it to them, I I see value in it, even if it's not the end. Now, should it be the end? Like all of it, like I, which is also I think an extension of your question, right? Like it's a celebration in and of itself, a political act of revolution. Absolutely, fuck not, right? It, like okay, like you send off your tweets, and if you are that professor, right, you face a lot of racist, anti-black, misogynist, misogynist backlash or if you're me you just tweet it and you move on with your life right it's it's Mm -hmm. definitely not something that brings about the end of empire but i do think that it the symbol i think the symbol is important and so yeah it's just a question of like what do what do symbols do especially when you say like the actual violence behind it is ongoing and it's ongoing to someone who (laughs) <laughs> who most people dislike for some reason or another. Again, I don't know these people outside of what I see on the magazines at Walmart. So I, I'm like, oh, <laughs> people are upset with him. I mean, about I, I think something. I think about the show. Was it Burn Notice? Every maybe folks don't know, but I I love spy things, and spy movies and books and all that kind of stuff. And in a lot of those books, people are like. I need to kill the head of X organization because they ruined my life or they killed, you know, this, this organization killed my family member. And they get to that person and they kill them. And then they're like, well, damn, now five more people have just popped up in their place and they're continuing the same system. So mm-hmm. I, think, I think what's kind of underlying my sentiment about it is just like, there's just five five more heads popping up. That that said, I mean, the way that the whole situation was treated is just kind of like re-legitimizing monarchies. And there's an article in the New York Times about um, the Italian monarchy and how there's a fight for it and uh, between two competing houses. And it's like the monarchy, they don't have one <laughs> in Italy. Like, it's, it's not even a thing anymore. It's a republic. So... Um, I think that the attention, the attention that we give to it also adds to the, adds to the legitimacy, which is similar to something that you had posted on Instagram about the period, ah, period, uh, girl, but we're not going to talk about it because of what you said. And yeah, (laughs) what we do want to talk about (laughs) is, um, that disturbs my whole spirit. Bridgerton. Um, Bridgerton. And these, you know, because we were talking about whitewashing the legacy and the history of, of the crown. And is, you know, what what is Hollywood doing? Color, color washing? I, I don't know. The history, mm-hmm. um, taught, like, you know, like black people were dukes and elites, elites during the Regency and Georgian era. And um, I watch those shows and I'm like, you would have been a slave. <laughs> you would have been a it slave actually... like talking about the courtship which is a, a dating show it's on amazon prime i believe that mm-hmm. mia our social media assistant put us on to mr malcolm's list which i do want to watch but haven't um you know Anne boleyn with jody turner smith 
uh, playing the title titular character. And what I wanted to say is I feel like all of this started with Belle. Do you know the movie? Featuring, okay, so it was a movie, it, was, it came out in 2013 <laughs> with Gugu and Batha Ra. It was directed by Ama Ooh. Asante, and it's, it's the true story of the illegitimate daughter of an English nobleman and an enslaved African woman. Um, Belle is the name of the character of the woman, and she was born into slavery, but then she was raised an heiress and a free gentlewoman in London after her dad went and, you know, freed her. And I think mm. that that kind of just unleashed people's imaginations <laughs> about how how there could be black people in the Regency and Georgian and Victorian eras as noble people. Yeah, I feel like that's partially true. And one thing that um, Ashley has shared with me was that there are people who are dedicated to finding some historical threads here um, who have the who have the time and the energy for it uh, and one of the things that was true I guess early on um, as pe- as they started to do their whole imperialist thing was that they had they couldn't just kill all the nobles in all these foreign lands they couldn't just kill everybody so they integrated some of them into kind of English noble society. But I think you're absolutely right in the sense that they wouldn't be integrated with equal standing, right? It, it's like what we talk, what Bonilla talks about, right? This kind of integration, but it's not um, an inclusion, right? But it's not actually something that puts you on equal standing mm-hmm. um, with the other folks. And so it's like a mix of like this is a this is a possibility because it was a strategy to take over like places like India where they didn't kill everybody who was in charge over there there were some folks that they allowed to live and allowed to invited we'll use that woman's word invited (laughs) to live in England um as a way of like you know and also in China I believe too that was a lot of mode but then when it moved to (laughs) places in Africa right that was almost definitely not the case okay Um, and so yeah I was I was was like I was very skeptical about that because I was like (laughs) I believe that that would have happened in in India and in Asia, but I do, I would not believe that the place that they were like, this place is just full of savages. I couldn't see that. I mean, one of, if anyone has an answer to this question, one of the things that I think about sometimes is why in the UK is Indian food so deeply entrenched in the culture there, but Caribbean food is not. And I think it's because they had, they also had this monarch the similar monarchical structure this caste system that was similar that could be read as a class system and therefore the british were like oh all right we can relate there are some people who are higher in the hierarchy than us so like your food is cool we'll eat it whereas they're just like caribbean food is scraps or something that's one of my that's one of my secret food anthropology questions i hope to answer one day we know that anti-black 
anti-blackness underruns everything. So, yeah, it's like where where do we draw that line in the past that we really don't know, you know? <laughs> yeah. Okay. So I I believe that, but historian folks who know better than I do, feel free to send us a message on Instagram or Twitter and let us know yeah. and tell us that we are wrong. One of the things I will say is I think that people actually don't really know how all these titles work. The whole like Duke, Baron, Viscount, Marchioness, all of that stuff. Mm-mm. Because I feel like there is this kind of like desire to, to, to find an ancestor who might have had some noble blood or something like that. And I'm like, you guys don't know that actually all of those titles are not just honorary. They also give you title to land. So, and from that land, you derive revenue. And, um, yeah, it's a lot of exploitation. <laughs> exploitation and theft um, that, that, um, that undergirds the whole... Uh, what is it, Lord Lord system become... or title titles title system? I forget what it's called. Oh, I'm I'm like serfdom. The fiefdom. <laughs> Y'all being serfdom. like, oh, I wish I was I wish I was a baron. I wish I was a duke. Um, yeah, you were just stealing money from peasants, basically. It's how they got their money. <laughs> That's why they're rich. Um, yeah. That disconnect from history is so it's so important. It's such an important thing. Something that we'll keep coming back to over and over again. <laughs> so I did on on the advice watch the courtship um, on the advice of um, Mia, our social media assistant. And one of the things that they said is, well, first of all, let me set the stage. It's one black woman, and she is going back into the Regency era. Her, her family, a.k.a. the court, so her parents, her sister, and her best friend, um, are, they, they stay in a castle with 16 suitors, 16 gentlemen, and they all dress up in Regency-era outfits, and the men are meant to be courting her. I watched the first episode and half of the second one or something. Actually, right at the beginning, they say... On this dating show, we want to see whether looking for your future may lie in the past. And I was like, here we go with the temporalities again. Here we go with the temporalities. I think, um, yeah, I want to hear you like talk a little bit about what you said about this whole like turning towards the past, signaling anxieties about, about the future, anxieties about contemporary current crisis um yeah i mean it's it's similar to something that bonilla said in unsettling sovereignty that like the renewed attention to sovereignty is actually an anxiety about globalization and the porosity of nation states borders and things like that so yeah i mean i think there there's a lot to say i don't know this black woman or her family history or things like that. So I'll just speak from my own. And from my father's side of the family, my father was born in Louisiana. His people are Creole. And when I went to the family reunion uh, in 2016, per my father's request, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> in 
uh, Covington, Louisiana, I was, me and like my older sister were like the two darkest people there. And, um, and not that anybody treated me like I didn't, I don't, it's not like a color struck story at all. No one treated me that way. But I was shook when I (laughs) walked into the room and saw, I was like, you know, who are these white people? Um, and then, you know, they're my cousins. Come to find out they're my cousins. And, and, uh, one of the ceremonies of the family reunion was like the reading of the Ancestry and Me report where, um, my uncle was talking about, well, you know, we're part French, we're part this, we're part that. And to me, that really signaled this sense of like, okay, these are like black people who have some internalized self stuff going on for sure. Um, but also find that there's no grounding in their African past, right? There's no, like, how do you find out about that past, right? Like mm. the past that has that's purposely been scrubbed and taken away from you, right? So why not dig deeper into these roots where you can actually go to an archive and, and trace things back and read these things? So I saw it as like, you know, this kind of way that a lot of black American people express anxiety about not knowing where they come from, not knowing who they are because they don't know where they come from. And so part of that anxiety being quelled by saying, well, we're French and we're this and we're that. Um, And they also mentioned some of the African uh, countries that we may be from. Um, And there's like a lore around that, too, of just... You know, but I'm not even going to get into that because that was like family drama stuff. But yeah, so like, I think that, I mean, I don't know this woman, but part of what people do when they, what I see black people doing when they reach back is, I know I can't reach back into this because it's dark or it's violent or it's, you know, there's an assumption that it's just a history of subjugation, right? Um, that that all, the, all the negative things that come with blackness. So why not reach back to this past that I know was better or brighter? Mm. Um, and then there's some kind of like psychic because <laughs> the psychic break, right, is that like in order for these white people to have the riches and the glory in the past, like all of that shit, like it had to come from the extraction of like our ancestors. Right. So the creation of that darkness is what undergirds that kind of bright looking past. Um and then the erasure of that history also is what helps um, uplift that. So, mm. yeah, I think it's just, it's a lot of different things that come into that. But it's, of course, a past that, like, never really existed. And if I think about the history of Creole people, elite Black people, especially in the U.S. South, of, like, really clinging to these kind of Victorian ideals and values, it was an aspiration to a life that they knew they couldn't have and that they always could approximate mm. right so yeah i don't mean i don't know girl like i would not want to be in no 17th century relationship like like yeah me. i mean there's there's a lot of <laughs> romanticization about that period of time and it's like did you want to urinate in a urinate and defecate in a bucket and then throw it out the window like is that really (laughs) a period that you want to return to um 
Right. And that's what they were doing until they met the more. And, and mind you, and mind you, I am not, <laughs> listen, I know that we have not always had toilets, but there are societies that had irrigation. There are societies that knew about hygiene. Hygiene. Like, like the Moors. Who taught y'all? Anyway, that's what you want to return to. Okay. Uh, but I, th- I think another place that we're seeing that is that, that, that return to traditional values, of course, is in, and we keep coming back to this, this is going to be the third time we've talked about it this year at least, um, but it's in the whole divine femininity, mas- mm-hmm. like black masculinity stuff where it's like, I am masculine, I am the man, I'm the head of the household, and, you know, I expect a woman to be submissive if she's going to be with me i have to be the caretaker i have to be the one who provides comfort for her because femininity cannot thrive in discomfort um but i think you know who took it way too far in my opinion is uh this return to the past in terms of relationships is jeremy o'harris um (laughs) (laughs) who is the writer he wrote the screenwriter for um sorry the playwright not screenwriter playwright for slave play which um yeah that one it broke barriers apparently and uh had a lot of people talking on broadway so slave play it's a three-act play about race, sex, power relations, trauma, and interracial relationships. It follows three interracial couples undergoing antebellum sexual performance therapy because the black partners no longer feel sexual attraction to their white partners. I saw it last December. It was uncomfortable, I will say. There were some points but there were not some points. So basically, these three couples, they're at a retreat and they have to dress up and act. They're role playing uh, like they are in, you know, in the slave times, antebell- in the antebellum period. Uh, the black partner is playing a slave and the white partner plays a master or I think there was a white woman. So she was playing uh, the mistress that the that the slave was having an affair with and there's like there's a safe word so if if someone's like okay this is too much they can stop and then you know all of the black couples they have what's called anhedonia so they're not feeling pleasure and they're trying to like play out this interracial relationship dynamic and take it to its roots where where like the psychologists think that the foundation of this anhedonia is coming from, which is, um, which is like their association with slavery. So they're trying to take it to its like complete end, like continue that feeling until they worked through it. And I guess what the play is supposed to do is, is trying to do is like make whiteness visible because the assumption is that whiteness is unmarked. And by turning the white characters into the slave masters and the mistress, 
it's meant to make this whiteness and make this history visible for white people. That was what, that's what I understood about it. It was odd. Y'all should see Brennan's face right now. She's just like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> I, I, I just remember when it came out and hearing about it, reading about it. And I said, hmm, this sounds like one of those things that was written by someone who is only attracted to white people. So let me, because why is this actually a dilemma, right? Like, you are with someone you no longer feel attracted to. Leave them. <laughs> you know, that's... They're married, Brendan. Okay, like, you why? don't just leave a marriage, right? <laughs> yes, you can. You can. Yo, all these laws that have passed now, y'all better do it before they really... You gotta work on it as someone who is pre-married. <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> gotta work on things. I, I'm just saying that... <laughs> Anyway, I was going to just be like, the way things are headed, if you are not happy and you still in something, you might want to get out before you have to stay. But anyway, so <laughs> I, yeah, so then I read about Jeremy O'Harris and lo and behold, he is a queer black man who has self-reported only experiences attraction to white people and can't understand for him own for his own self, um, how to release that bond. And so what was particularly troubling about me, and especially this characterization of the play as something about race, sex, power relations, trauma, interrelational relationships, when we, when you understand chattel slavery as a structure of power and domination in which love cannot exist, Right? Like, you cannot love someone who has power and dominant, like, total and complete power and domination over you, right? So, characterize it as sex when it is rape, right? To characterize, like, these power relationships as anything but, you know, this, like, structurally violent thing. That's one book on the shelf. Um <laughs> Somebody's already written it, I'm sure. And I, like, so that for, like that really troubles me. And so I know that there are scenes with Black women being violated as part of the, like, play, right? The race play, sex play, whatever. Um, mm-hmm. Race, rape, yeah. <laughs> sex play, right? And then, um, and but that being a tool that allows this, black person to interrogate their own unceasing attraction to white men like that that in and of itself was like i'm out i'm I'm clicking out i'm not even gonna spend no money on this because no why why do black men continue to treat us like pawns to work out their psychological issues i don't understand it if you see that there's a major problem in the way that you're attracted to people that you only seem to be attracted to people who violate you, talk to a therapist. Don't imagine black women being raped as a way to help you work through that. Like, I, that's so, it's just odd to me. Um, but I think too, like, I think it's interesting too, just to zoom out of that and think about interracial relationships in general as something that people think as 
as like a microcosm form of resistance against these kind of colonial histories. <laughs> I think we might have to save this one for the Patreon. Okay, so wow, we got really personal for that little Patreon aside. Um, <laughs> head to patreon.com slash Zora's Daughters to subscribe and listen. But what I did want to do, I wanted to go back to what you're saying about not about there not being love in structures of domination. And I want to ask you then, how does that work with a heterosexual or relationship with a cis man? Because that is, patriarchy is also a structure of domination. So can a woman be in a, um, in a consenting relationship with a man? Of course, there are like the radical third wave feminists that I remember reading. I'm trying to remember their names, but I cannot. Uh, who, who wrote that sex with a cis man is rape, regardless of whether or not you consent because of said structure of domination. That's so, people are so interesting. (laughs) Are these black people that said that? I just. No, I want to say that it was like Cherry Moraga and Adrian McKinnon. I might be, might be, Adrian Rich, sorry. Okay. Hmm. I'm like, I don't know what these people look like, but I will say most black feminists whether it be for the good or the bad of the race whatever tm um (laughs) believe that black cishet men should be carried along with us that's all that and i'm gonna leave it there (laughs) but i i think that like this is is contextual in the sense that like I guess I can say this. So I'm in a relationship with a cis head man, right? And not something that I ever would have picked for myself. (laughs) But, you know, the The ancestors. The cards and the stars. The ancestors. (laughs) The cards and the stars are something something else for me. So, and I would say that I don't feel, unlike my relationship in the past with cis head men who, because of the black cis head men who were so... Um, insecure about themselves and so felt like in order to prove that they were men and TM, they had to exert violence and dominate me. Um, he does not do that. And so, and in those relationships, I would characterize, I would say that many of the times that we had sex, it was in fact, it was rape, right? It was not sex that I wanted to have. And so uh, being in a relationship that is completely different, um, has shown me that love with men is possible, but I think that it just really depends on the man. Like, is a man in a relationship because he really loves you and values you, or is he in a relationship because he's trying to prove to his homies that he's a man? Mm. Like, he's trying to prove to the white man in his head that he's a man. Like, and if you don't, you don't have those experiences, then you're not in a relationship where someone is like actively dominating you like we can't do anything about i mean we can do lots of things about the structures that be but like you know i can't really change the fact that like on a structural level cis men experience privileges that like non-cis men don't so 
Yeah. That's that's my complicated answer to that. Depends on the but then, so how is that so how is it different from an interracial relationship? I guess is maybe where I was going with that. Ooh, um gender I don't like to compare gender <laughs> gender and race. Um Fair enough. That's fair. <laughs> I think I think racial like I mean, we could bring Hortense Spillers into this. So, like, for black people, if we're thinking about black gender, right, which is, like, a different kind of gender than, like, what I would say gender with a capital G, which is white supremacist, patriarchal, capitalist construction of gender that says that cis men are dominators, they're violent, they prove that they're men by doing violent stuff, right? Whereas everyone who's not that is dominated, is violated, is in the position of, but also protected, right? Underneath this structure. But what blackness does is actually negates all of that and compresses people who would be considered black men and black women into a gender category of black gender in which everyone can be violated no matter what mm. genitals they may have. And so this is getting into some real theoretical stuff. Yeah. No, that's... <laughs> so, <laughs> if you're like, what are you talking him. about? You'll have to listen to our episode where we discussed uh, Mama's Baby, Papa's Maybe. The episode number, I cannot think of it off the top of my head, but I will put it in the show notes so you all can click right yeah. to it. Since this episode is essentially finished. We did say, did we say we were going to talk about the Woman King? I was going to be like, yo, the queen, I'm done talking about it. I want to talk about the Woman King with Viola Davis playing a the Dahomey warrior queen. There were some ADOS conversations that is uh, African descendants of slaves. Is that, is that American descendants of slaves? Yeah, American descendants American of slaves. American ADOS. I'm... Arguments about that, that we should boycott it because those are the people who sold Africans into slavery. But we might just have to save it for another episode. Yeah. <laughs> I think the last thing we'll say... The last thing we should say is that, you know, we are real time sitting in the midst of the aftermath, quote unquote, of colonialism, quote unquote, with what's happening with Hurricane Fiona in in Puerto Rico. And so sending the love and the peace that we can from where we are and the privileged positions that we are in, um, but just knowing that we are going to have to figure out as a community how are we going to support the people of Puerto Rico post this. Maria was devastating, but this is like cataclysmic. And I am just like, it just lingers in in my mind of just like, what are we going to do? Um, Particularly for the, the black people on the island who were already in such a precarious place post maria like what are we gonna do what are we gonna do thank you for that that's all we have for you today thank you for listening this episode was produced by Alyssa james and brendan tynes and distributed in partnership with the american anthropological association 
This season of the podcast is generously funded by a grant from the Arts and Science Graduate Council, the Heyman Center Public Humanities Graduate Fellowship, and donations from listeners just like you. Thank you all for your support. If you like this episode, please give us a five-star rating and review on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. It really helps with our podcast being shown to other people. And we just like reading the reviews in our, you know, free time. That's true. That's Um, true. (laughs) (laughs) And so, of course, you can show us more love directly by sharing our podcast episodes on social media, dropping a link in that group chat on Slack. Y'all just found out about Slack. And (laughs) yes, people need to be educated. Um, Or even adding a little note to your email signature. Tell them your favorite podcast. Get the tote bag. We like, (laughs) tote bag is because I listen to Tori's daughters. Um, And if you do any of these things, please let us know on Instagram at Zora's Daughters and on Twitter at Zora's underscore daughters. And for transcripts, merch, this season's reading list, and information on how to cite us or become a patron, visit our website, Zora'sDaughters.com. Last but not least, be kind to yourselves. Bye. 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 Bye.